That's what the, the body's all about. Uh, it's Acts chapter 2, kind of Christianity. Those who have give to those who have not. We help out one another. We bless one another. Praise God, and the work goes forward. A couple other announcements. If you're visiting here for the first time or second time or third time but have never done this, we want to encourage you to fill out the visitor's card on the, in, the, in the bulletin and uh, turn it in at the visitor's table out in the gathering area. And you can receive a free tape, and we can be in dialogue with you and see if there's any needs that we have that, that, that we can meet in your life. Uh, read your bulletin. I encourage you to read your bulletin carefully for upcoming events and mystery opportunities and activities. There's a lot going on in this church, and um, it's just good to know about all of that. One of the things that's going on that we're excited about is our Sunday night service, which began several weeks ago. Six o'clock here at the church uh, goes to 7.30 or 8. It's a prayer, praise, and healing service, and we're, just a lot, we're able to be uh, less formal than we are here. And I know a lot of you are thinking, you're pretty informal here. But uh, we give a chance for the Spirit to move. We pray for people. There's healing that takes place. And uh, we just wait on the Lord. The walkers lead the worship service. Uh, uh, Peggy Riley gives us a short message that's pertinent to, to uh, healing and praise and things of that sort. So uh, God really shows up. It's an anointed time. And I encourage you to, to check that out. Next Saturday, 9 o'clock, here at the church, uh, Kindness Outreach uh, is, is meeting again. They'll be working in the uh, dwelling place as well as uh, helping out in yards, raking leaves. Uh, you don't have to have any kind of qualification for this. If you just have a willing heart, show up here. And, and it's one of the ways that we can demonstrate Christ's love uh, to the community around us. At this time, please turn off your cell phones and pagers. And if you have children that decide that they do not like my message, I have no problems with that. Uh, but please take them back in the crying room. And you can still hear us, but we can't hear you. And we thank the Lord for soundproof windows. And then uh, at 12.30, uh, please, uh, those who parked in the uh, theater area, uh, move your cars at that time. We try to get done by then, but sometimes the spirit moves or I just get long-winded. But at 12.30, we really need those moved as part of our agreement with uh, Nathan, who was there. Okay. Uh, appreciated Ephraim being here last week. What a gifted, anointed man. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, come on, Ephraim, get over here. I, I, uh, I, I just really sense an anointing on that guy, and I really appreciate what he's doing. He'll be speaking here again next month, too. Um, about half of you were down at the marathon course, and I appreciate the cheering, but I, I, I'm, I'm seriously, I, I, my daughter and I ran the marathon uh, last week, and uh, throughout the whole course, there's people from Woodland Hills, you know, go, Pastor Boyd, and I'd holler back, why aren't you at church? So I, we're, we're, we, we decided to issue a one-time indulgence just for, the, for, for that, okay? That's it. Now, don't go pressing your luck. And last week was it. So, you know, you're, but uh, that, it was a fun time. I'm starting to walk again. I'm feeling better. Uh, my daughter won her age group division, says the proud father. And, uh, and by God's grace, and it was all God's grace, I was able to hang with her the whole way. It was a real good bonding experience. That was, to me, the whole goal of the whole thing. So I uh, appreciated the encouragement on that. It's good to be back. And finally, no, I have not joined the military. This is just the haircut she gave me, all right? So it wasn't intentional. I don't want anyone else to call me Sergeant Boyd. I just, you know, sir, yes, sir. I want to encourage you, we're, we're living in a crazy time right now. You know, this is a little bit wild right now. The, the, the country's at war. And people are freaking out. And they're getting, you know, just 
kind of stressed out. Uh, so I listened to Nightline the other night, and a lady who handles 911 calls was talking about some of the calls that they're getting. They're getting an unprecedented number of calls. But people are just kind of freaking over this anthrax thing, and, and it is bad. I mean, we've got nine cases now. It's just like really going bad. Um, but someone called in because they saw a mysterious pill on the floor of a, of a grocery store. It turns out someone dropped an aspirin, but they call the police. Uh, you know, it, it's crazy stuff. Uh, U-Hauls are getting, uh, someone sees a U-Haul, that looks suspicious. Uh, so they call the police on that. Uh, someone called the police um, because some Middle Eastern people bought some blankets at their store. You know, and, and that looks suspicious to this clerk. You know, uh, well, it is winter time and people do buy blankets. But he calls the police on that. We need to be praying for people of Middle Eastern descent here in this country because this cannot be easy. You know, we've got a kind of a weird paranoia going on here. It's like what happened with the Japanese during the Second World War. And uh, we really need to be embracing them and praying for them. But you know what? What I just want to say, this isn't my message. This is just a little free commercial. Uh, he shall give him perfect peace to those whose eyes are stayed on him. Amen. Perfect peace, complete peace, unprecedented peace. Just keep your eyes fixed on the Lord. Jesus said, not as the world gives do I give peace to you. My peace I give to you. And there's available to the believer just a peace that passes understanding. And even though things around us are a little bit tense and maybe they're going to get worse, uh, we can here walk with a peace that passes understanding. That can be a testimony to the reality of Jesus Christ. And I encourage you to, to uh, anchor in on that. It's also just a time right now, you know, uh, Bible sales have doubled in the last three weeks uh, in, in local bookstores. And, and people are, are beginning to think about religious stuff now, uh, God's stuff. This is a great time to be looking for opportunities to share Christ uh, to people, uh, more so than, than otherwise. We're talking about the church. We're talking about the vision of the church. And the way we're talking about that is by confronting various myths that people have about the church. Um, and so this morning, I want to continue this series by talking about myth number five. The fifth myth, the, myth, the fifth misconception that people have about the church is that it's for the, the weak-minded or the simple-minded. Church is for the simple-minded. The conception is out there all over the place. And I want to talk, this is what I'm personally very invested in. It means a lot to me because this is one aspect of Christian PR that I, I really am grieved by. We do have that, people have that perception of conservative Christianity. It's for simple-minded people, people who just need to be spoon-fed answers to all their questions, who don't think very deeply, don't think very thoroughly, certainly don't think very critically. Basically, they don't think. Now, here's what the Bible says about this. I'll give you a couple passages before we get started. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, the Lord says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. The Lord invites us to think. That's why he gave us a brain. Next passage comes from uh, Matthew 22:37. Jesus said, Love the Lord thy God. This is the greatest of all the commandments. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. He wants us to worship Him with our mind. He gave us our mind, and He wants us to use it. I don't know where the idea that you have to be mindless to be a person of faith comes from, but it certainly doesn't come from the Bible. The Lord calls us to be mindful, full of mind, and worshiping Him with it. Acts chapter 1, verses, uh, verses 3, 6 through 8. After His suffering, He presented Himself alive to His disciples with many convincing proofs, it says. The Lord understood that for people to believe that he's risen from the dead, they're going to need some reasons to believe that. So he, he, he obliges them in that. He doesn't ask anybody to shoot out their brains in order to believe in him. 
He gives them reasons. He appeared to them for 40 days and he spoke about the kingdom of God. When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom of Israel? They think that Jesus, still at this point, they're thinking of Jesus as a military uh, Messiah who's going to kick some Roman behind and, and make Israel a sovereign state. They just have not got it yet. They've got a lot of questions. Jesus says this. He replied, it's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by His own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Now look at this. Jesus gives people reason enough to believe that He's Lord. But He doesn't answer all their questions. In fact, at this point, the disciples have a lot of questions. They don't know what to expect in the future. They, 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 they're, they're still thinking Israel is going to become a politically sovereign state. He tells them about the Holy Spirit coming upon them, but they don't know what that's going to look like. He doesn't tell them anything about church growth. doesn't tell them anything about church conflict. They're going to have a lot of questions going on. But one thing they do know is that Jesus Christ is Lord. Praise God. And the Holy Spirit will empower them. I need about... 20 people over on the side of the room to be praying for me during this message and then during the worship service that the full anointing will come down. Raise your hands if you'll be intercessors for me. Thank you. In the middle here, I need about 10, 20 people to be intercessors for me. Thank you. Over here, 10, 15, 20 people. I need, come on, this is the carnal side of the room, obviously, today. Come on, a couple more. I need a couple more. Really, I need need some intercessors. Okay, good. Okay, thank you. Just be uh, covering this whole thing with prayer and also during the worship service, asking for God's full anointing to come down. We really need the presence of God. Otherwise, this is a human thing, and it's really kind of a waste of time. We need the full presence of God. You don't need a Greg encounter, and you don't need a music encounter. What we all need is a Jesus encounter. And that gets released through prayer. So let's pray. Father, I ask that your Spirit would flood this place right here and right now, in Jesus' name. Your full Shekinah glory... In all of your glory, in all of your joy, in all of your power, take my sometimes stammering and uh, overly fast words and make them your word, I pray, God, and make them powerful and effective to build a kingdom in our minds and hearts. And Lord God, the music that's going to be following, God, I pray that you draw our hearts fully into worship to make music more than just music, to make it a vehicle of praise. But we need your presence here, Lord. I pray, God, especially for any who don't know you here this morning, I pray that this morning would be their morning to change their eternal destiny and come into a saving relationship with you. Be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. A lot of you will remember about a year ago, I think it was, that a certain politician... uh, gave an interview... Um, in uh, Playboy magazine, that just bastion of uh, political insight, and gave an interview in which uh, he said, and God bless Jesse. I, I love Jesse. Pray for Jesse. We're supposed to pray for our leaders. Uh, you know, I, I, I kind of like his personality. I don't know what he is as a politician, but, but uh, anyways, he said this. One of the less insightful things he said was, uh, religion, organized religion is a crutch for weak-minded people. Really? It's a crutch for weak-minded people. And that, of course, caused a little bit of a, of a, of a stirring in the, in the Christian community. If it was just Jesse, it'd be kind of amusing, you know? Uh, it'd be kind of funny. 
But unfortunately, this is not just a Jesse opinion. In fact, I think it kind of represents what a lot of people in our culture think. You know, people who can't have their own religious thing or, or who can't handle reality, who just can't face up to the facts of what life's about, they need a crutch. And that's what faith really is. That's what church really is. That's what Christianity really is. My dad, uh, when he was an agnostic before he became a believer, um, this was his opinion. A lot of you have read Letters from a Skeptic, and it's the, the view of born-again types that he expresses in, in uh, Letters from a Skeptic. You born-again types, you just don't think very deeply. You don't think very critically. You don't think through issues. It's one of the reasons why he was so concerned for me when I became a Christian at the age of 17. He really was convinced. He didn't care what I believed, but he thought that his born-again types just don't have much of a mind. They're just not very bright. They're not the brightest bulbs on the block. And if you start hanging around with them, surely your brain's going to turn to mush. And he was hoping that I'd become a doctor or something where I'd use my brain. And so he's like saying, he'd argue, trying to get me out of this cult, as he saw it, uh, saying, Greg, come on, you're smarter than this, you're brighter than this. You don't need this, this, this irrational crutch. This is a quote he said. It sounded almost like Jesse Ventura. You don't need this irrational crutch for simple-minded people. Irrational crutch for simple-minded people. And that's a conception that's really out there uh, about born-again Christians, conservative evangelical Christians. And to a certain degree, I have to say that it's not, it's not totally without ground. It's, it's, it's based on something. Because a lot of times, churches sometimes make being mindless into a virtue. They're sort of proud of the fact that they never think about anything very deeply. I just believe it. God said it. I believe it. And that settles it for me. Hallelujah. The church I was saved in. The church I was saved in was like this. Um, I got saved when I was 17 and, and uh, had a great experience with the Lord. And that sustained me for about a year. But before long, I began to think about kind of the stuff I was believing. I went to the University of Minnesota and took a course in the Bible as literature and took a course in evolutionary biology and took a, took a bunch of courses in philosophy. I was a philosophy major, and my head got all screwed up. I mean, I was really spinning there for a while. At one point, I went to my pastor. I wrote down all of my, my, my questions and all my problems. I had a big chart. This is the kind of stuff I do. I had this giant chart with all the problems I found in the Bible, all the discrepancies I found in the Bible. And, and I, I, I really, my head was spinning, and my heart wanted to believe that, that it's all true. I really did. But my mind was just all confused, and I went to my pastor and said, you know, what are we going to do about this? And I just showed him one after one the other, about two hours worth of this, showing him the, the various problems and questions that I, that I had. And when I was all said, and when it was all done, he looked at me and he, he says, Well, Greg, one thing I know, and that's that whenever anyone questions the Word of God, it's because they're running away from something. What are you running away from? Have you got moral sin in your life? <laughs> And I was like, you know, actually, I'm having a pretty good week on that account, but that's not, that's not the issue here. What do you do with this? You know, you've got this problem, too. This just isn't my problem. And he says, well, as for me, you know, I'm just going to continue to believe the Word. I can't explain all the questions, but I'm going to continue to believe the Word. And I said, well, that's like an ostrich just sticking your head in the ground, pretending the world's not there. And the next Sunday, he preached a sermon on the virtue of being an ostrich. I'm not kidding. It's like, and I hightailed it out of there for about a year. It's like, you know what? I'm done with this. 
you know, I want to believe. I, I wish my experience was true, but, but uh, these people just don't deal with reality. They're not thinking about stuff. Now, what grieves me is this. Nowhere does the Bible ever recommend that kind of mindlessness. In fact, uh, as the verses we just showed a little bit ago show, uh, God actually encourages us to use our mind. It's not that you have to put your mind on, the, on, the, on hold to become a believer. You've got to use your mind, and God invites you to, your, to use your mind to become a believer. I want to take a, a biblical perspective on faith and blow apart this myth that faith is an irrational crutch for simple-minded people, and I'm going to break it down in, in like three segments and just take a biblical perspective on this. First of all, let's look at the, the, the idea that faith is a crutch. Faith is a crutch. It's what people got to lean on when they can't walk on their own. You know, you just need to believe there's a pie in the sky when you die by and by. And that will make death a little easier to accept. And it will make the hardships of life a little easier to accept, you know. And it's just a crutch that, 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 that weak people have got to lean on. That's what faith is. Let me say a couple of things about it. Number one, the interesting thing about faith is that everybody, everybody has it. Everybody has faith. It's not a question of whether you're going to have faith or not. It's a question of, of where your faith is going to be directed. Not just on big religious things either, but on little things. You go to, to get on an airplane. And you see, faith is just about going beyond the evidence. Uh, acting on a belief that goes beyond the evidence. When you get on an airplane, have you conclusively proven to yourself that the pilots aren't drunk? Do you know for sure that the security guards were doing their job? Do you know for sure, have you checked out every passenger to make sure that, that no one's got a box cutter knife and there's no terrorists on board? Are you sure that there's no bomb anywhere? Have you checked out all of that? And the answer, of course, is no. But you still get on the plane and you still fly. You have faith that this is going to be a safe plane. You get out to drive your car home. How do you know? Can you prove to me that there wasn't a terrorist that put a bomb under your car? How do you know it's not going to blow up as soon as you start it? You can't prove that. No one micro-inspects their car every time they get in to drive it. You have faith. You have faith. I met a guy one time who didn't trust his wife for whatever sick reasons. He just couldn't trust his wife, that his wife would be faithful to him. And so he had to monitor her behavior day and night. He needed conclusive proof all the time that she wasn't cheating on him. He even I got a friend to follow her around at one point to make sure that, you know, she was exactly where, he, where she said she was going to be. And in the end, it blew apart the marriage because this is what you call paranoia. You know, this is kind of a sickness because this guy wouldn't have any faith. He needed evidence all the time that his faith was going to be trustworthy. Sane people, healthy people, trust their spouses. You have faith, but you can't prove. Even this guy couldn't prove that his spouse is going to be faithful all the time. Everyone goes beyond the evidence and everybody has faith. You, you'd be paralyzed. You couldn't act on anything if you didn't have faith in something. But also on the big questions of life. Atheists have a lot of faith. Yeah, they have a lot of faith. You are really, you don't know that there is no God. You can't prove that there is no God. And you are wagering all, everything in your life and, if we're right, your eternity on the hope that there is no God. You're hoping that life turns out to be as meaningless and as empty as, as you believe it is. That's your best case scenario. You know, but, but you can't prove that. That's an act of faith. And people who, who refuse to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, that, that's an act of faith. You're believing it's just a mere man, or you're, you're having faith that it's just a legend. But that is going beyond the evidence. You're wagering everything on the hope that that is so. Everybody has faith. It's not a question of whether you're going to have faith or not. It's a question of what kind of faith you're going to have, who you're going to put your faith in. 
Now, people think that, that it's the Christian faith that has a crutch because it gives, makes life meaningful and it gives people peace and it gives people joy, so it must be a crutch. And I want to turn the tables on this. I want to talk for a moment to, to non-believers here. Uh, I would argue that it's not the Christian faith that is a crutch. I would argue that it's those who refuse to accept the Christian faith that are relying on a crutch. Come on, you won't tangle with me? You want your son? Watch it, I'm a military sergeant. <laughs> no, look at think for here for a second, okay? I don't mean to be insulting anything, but just think for a second here. See, one could just as easily argue it this way. You think we have a crush because we submit our life to Jesus Christ? I think you got control issues because you won't. <laughs> You're trying to hang on to some control in your life. You got a need. You need the crutch. The illusion that you're independent, but you're not. You need the crutch that somehow you're Lord of your own destiny, but you're not. It, you, it's the most obvious thing in the world. You didn't create yourself. You, you know, you, you, you can't uh, add one cubit to your stature uh, by worrying about it. You can't, you're not in control of most things about your life. You want to believe that you're independent. You want to believe that you're self-created. You want to believe that, believe that you're Lord of your own life. But as a matter of fact, I would argue that's a crutch. You've got control issues. Uh, you know, you need to let go of that. Paul Vitz, he's a well-known therapist. Uh, he's a uh, he's at New York State University, head of the psychiatric department. He wrote this book that is so interesting on, on, on this account. It's called The Faith of the Fatherless, The Psychology of Atheism. It's an incredibly interesting uh, psychoanalytic uh, investigation of, of some of the famous atheists of the 19th and the 20th century. Frederick Nietzsche, for example, and, and Sigmund Freud, and uh, Feuerbach, and, and others. These famous atheists. And what he finds is this. They all had bad relationships with their fathers. They all had major father's issues. They never got out of the sort of adolescent stage where you've got to reject your parents a little bit in order to assert your own identity. These are people, his theory was this. Believing in God is natural. But for some people who get locked into sort of a, they have unresolved father issues, they need to keep on trying to pretend that there is no father, that they're lords of their own life, and that there's no one to whom that they're accounted for. I, I want to submit to you that that's a crutch. It's a crutch. In fact, I, I would go further and say this. I, I want to call upon all who are not believers in Jesus Christ here uh, this morning to really consider the possibility of throwing away that crutch. Uh, you don't need it. You don't need to hang on to the control issues in your life. Throw away your crutch. Consider the possibility that there is, in fact, a God. Throw away your crutch and consider the possibility that, in fact, you are created by a moral being and you're going to answer him to him someday. Throw away the, 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 the crutch and consider the, the possibility that life goes on forever and ever, and it goes on forever either with God or without God. Face reality there. I want you to throw away your crutch and consider the possibility, face up to reality, that God maybe isn't anything like your earthly father or anything like your earthly mother. He's the Lord God of the universe. He's loving. He, he's gracious. He loved you enough to send his son to die for you and if you believe in him he'll give you everlasting life throw away your crutch and consider the possibility consider the evidence come let us reason says the lord and people think that oh well because it gives you you know joy and meaning and peace then it must be a crutch and no wonder people believe in it it gives you joy peace and meaning but now stop let's think here Mm, turn on the brain cells You'd only think that if you first had faith that life is meaningless, there is no peace and there is no joy. See, you believe that, so anyone who does have love, joy, and peace must be using it as a crutch. But what if, in fact, you're wrong about this one and they're right? In fact, consider this. I would argue that 
It, it, you know, it is true that when, that when you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, it does make your life meaningful. It does give you joy. It does give you peace. But far from that being an argument against the truthfulness of the Christian faith, I would argue that it is evidence for the truth of the Christian faith because what it means is this. You were made for this. This, this fills the longing in your soul. You're thirsty, and that proves there's such a thing as water. You get hungry, and it proves there's such a thing as food. You need air. You know what? Thankfully, there's such a thing as air. Well, there is a gnawing in the core of your soul, and you know it, that the world can't fill, all the money in the world can't fill, the nicest houses in the world can't fill, and any relationship in the world can't fill, and that proves that there's a being, a God who created you, who created you in order that He might fill it, and open up to Him here today and accept Him as Lord of your life. And find that joy and find that peace and find that meaning. Faith is not a crutch. I think the rejection of it is a crutch. The second thing I, I, I want to deal with is this. Faith is not irrational. It's not a crutch and it's certainly not an irrational crutch. What I mean by that is this. People think that faith is just groundless. It's just something you just sort of choose to believe. Our culture is full of this. There's a newscast uh, person uh, I heard this week, and she was talking about the Arab Christian thing, you know, and she said this. Well, you know, faith is a deeply personal thing. And it's not that, therefore, the kind of thing that you can talk about whether it's true or not. You can't discuss it, let alone argue it in public. It's a deeply personal thing. And see, what she was believing, and it's widespread in our culture, is that you just sort of choose to believe. It's like, it's like what kind of uh, flavor ice cream do you like? You know, what, what, uh, what kind of clothes do you like? What kind of music do you like? It's all subjective. You can't give a foundation for it. There is no foundation for it. So whether you believe in Jesus or whether you believe in Allah or whether you believe in Buddha or whether you believe that, that a toad will become a prince or something, it doesn't matter. It's all subjective. Everyone can just believe whatever they want to believe and there's no, no basis to it. Now what's amazing is that the Bible never assumes that view of faith. The Bible always presupposes, we saw a couple of the passages here, that people need a basis to believe something. We always act on the basis of evidence. You get into planes because there's good evidence that usually they fly very well. You get into cars because usually there's, there's evidence that usually they don't blow up. You, you trust your spouse because there's evidence that usually spouses are faithful. We do everything on the basis of evidence. Right now we're doing this anthrax thing, and, and people are always cautioning, don't rush to conclusions. Let's look at the evidence here. Does it lead to the terrorism thing, or, or is it a criminal investigation thing, or how much of it is hoax? Everyone pays attention to evidence. But somehow when it comes to the Christian faith or faith in general, it's like all of a sudden you're just supposed to go on a basis of a whim in your heart. People don't operate that way. That's not, that's not how we're wired. God gives us every reason to believe. He gives us good reasons to base our faith in Jesus Christ. He doesn't ask us just to take a blind leap of faith into the dark, into no man's land. Yes, it involves faith, but it's not faith against the evidence. It goes beyond the evidence, but it's not against the evidence. Here's just a little tiny, minuscule, weeny little snippet of the kind of things that the Lord gives us as a basis for believing that, in fact, Jesus Christ is Lord. For one thing, he gives us fulfilled prophecies. You look at the Bible. There are prophecies about the coming Messiah, and Jesus Christ fulfills them. One of them is in Isaiah 53, where it talks about the suffering servant. It's 800 years before Jesus exists. It describes uh, Jesus in remarkable detail, to the point where it says that he'll be uh, killed with criminals, but buried with the rich. 
What's the probability of that happening? It's very, very small. Especially the probability of it happening 800 years from the time you predicted. It's very, very small. One of the ways you know Jesus Christ is the Son of God is the way He fulfills prophecy. The other thing the Lord does is He does miracles to substantiate His claim. He walks around saying, you know, I'm the Son of God. I have this relation with the Father. You believe on me and you can be saved. If you see me, you see the Father, whatever. But He doesn't just say, hey, believe it because I said so. He does miracles to demonstrate the truthfulness of his claim. Not only that, but he rises from the dead. They put him in the grave, and three days later he arises and appears to to people for 40 days after that, showing them many convincing proofs. His resurrection from the dead is the basis for believing that he, in fact, is the Son of God. You also have the transformation of the disciples. He now takes residence inside of his disciples, and their lives are turned upside down. They go from being this this, uh, pack of wimpy cowards to these bold disciples who are willing to lay down their life for their faith. Uh, uh, What explains that transformation of Jesus Christ is not real. And the final piece of evidence is one that's very important. I can't go into it now. I've written uh, about it in Letters from a Skeptic and in Cynic Sage and Son of God and some other, other books. Very important, but it's just this. The Gospels give us every reason in the world to, to believe that they are historically reliable. You, put, you, you, you take tests that historians use to assess any uh, ancient historical document, you apply them to the Gospels, and they come out with flying colors. And so, a lot more I could say about that, but don't have time. What I'd like to say now is this. I know why, and every Christian can know why they believe what they believe. I know why I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I'm willing to base my life on that. I grant that I have to go beyond the evidence to do that. But I know, I know the basis upon which I believe He's the Son of God and that He did miracles and rose from the dead. What I want to know is if you don't believe that, what's your basis? What's your ground? We're going to walk out here having faith in you that He is the Son of God or He's not the Son of God. I can tell you why I believe He is the Son of God. What's your rational foundation uh, for thinking that He's not the Son of God? If, the disciple, if Jesus never did miracles, then tell me why the disciples were willing to lay down their life on the claim that He did do miracles. And if Jesus never rose from the dead, then tell me why His disciples were willing to lay down their life on the belief that He did rise from the dead. And explain to me the probability of the Isaiah prophecy and other such prophecies coming true. And explain to me the transformation of the early church. And explain to me the reliability of the Gospels. I know why I believe Jesus is Lord. Do you know why you don't? Because it's a very important decision. Come let us reason, says the Lord, and consider it. But I'm not even getting warmed up yet because, you see, the foundation goes way beyond historical evidence. Uh, It's just this. You know, you can confirm or disprove faith by what happens afterwards. Uh, you know, you get on a plane, and if it flies well, that means your faith was, was well-grounded. If it doesn't, it means your faith was misplaced. You get in the car, and it drives safely, means that your faith that the car was going to go well, it was, was well-placed. If it blows up, uh, bad bet that day, I guess. Uh, you know, if your spouse is faithful, your faith is well-placed. If, if uh, he's not, then that means the faith was, was misplaced. You see, you, you can tell, you can confirm or disprove the nature of faith by what happens afterwards. And what I want to say to you this morning is this, and there's a lot of people who would testify for this. Uh, Jesus is a plane you can get on and you're going to get someplace. Uh, Jesus is a car you can drive and, and he's a Mercedes. You know, uh, uh, He's not going to blow up on you. Jesus is a spouse uh, that's going to remain faithful to you. You take, to try Jesus on for size, get into this plane, drive this car, and marry this spouse, and you're going to find that something significantly changes. It works. And that's one of the verifications of faith. You know, it's hard to tell me that, that Jesus isn't real because, you see, I, this isn't just a historical hypothesis for me. He's living in me. 
uh, I've been taken over by this alien force, and his name is Jesus. And, and there's a reality there. I, I get up in the morning. Don't tell me he's not real. I talked to him this morning. And I'm telling you how that, that was a very real conversation. And you walk with a very real power in your life. Amen? A very real presence in your life. It's hard to tell me that Jesus Christ isn't real. You should see what he's done in my life. You know, I, I'm not perfect, but you should have seen how I was before. Amen? And that's testimony to the glory of God. You can't, it's hard to tell me that Jesus Christ isn't real. I have seen him reach down and take people in the valley and put them up on the mountaintop. You know, don't tell me he's not real. I've seen him. He heals people's minds. He's healed people's bodies. He heals people's spirit. It's hard to tell me he's not real. You know, I've seen him take people in despair and he gives them hope. He takes people who are depressed and he gives them joy. And he takes people who are weak and he makes them strong. And he takes people who are struggling and he makes them more than conquerors, praise God. He takes people who are anxious and he gives them peace. He takes people who are loveless and he fills them with love. He takes people who are apathetic and he makes them passionate. It's hard to tell me that Jesus isn't real. I'm here to tell you this morning he is real. His presence is real. His power is real. Praise God. He takes people who are... I could go on here. He, I've, seen him, I've seen him make racists into reconcilers and sinners into saints, you know. Uh, praise God. He's the Lord. He's real. He's the Savior. He's real. He's the Creator. He's real. He's the Sanctifier. He's real, praise God. He's not just a historical hypothesis. God gives us reason to believe on Him on that basis alone. But I'm telling you, when you enter into this reality, it stops just being a historical theory. It starts being a present reality that can change your life. Will you this morning consider... Face up to reality, the reality of Jesus Christ. This thing is solid. It's about as solid as anything in life ever gets, praise God. This is not based on, on an irrational crutch, a whim, someone's subjective impression. It's solid from top to bottom, praise God. And you, you stand on solid ground. He's a rock, he's a foundation, an edifice that will not be moved. I don't care what else in life is moved. This rock stays eternally the same, praise God. You can plant your feet on it, you can count on it, you can cash in on this one. Accept him as Lord of your life here this morning, praise God. Final thing I've got to talk about is this. Christianity, the myth is that Christianity is for the simple-minded. Now, the Christianity is and faith is for the simple-minded. Because Christianity is for everybody. The Lord never asks anybody their IQ level before He decides whether to save them or not. Praise God. It's across the board. And, and uh, you know, so this is not a message against being simple-minded. If, if you're simple-minded, we love you. God loves you. Praise God. I'm just saying this, that, that, the, that Christianity and the Lord do not require you to be simple-minded. In fact, it moves us to be as beyond that as is possible for us. On this one in particular, I have to say that the non-believing world has more of a point. My experience with conservative contemporary Christians wasn't always the case throughout history, but there's something about, especially American Christians, where we like everything like a fast food chain. We want things simple, we want them packaged, we want them black, we want them white, we want them just, you know, no ambiguity, just feed us the answer, don't make us work for it. We don't want to have to think about these things. Just tell us if it's right or wrong, all right? Just tell us what to believe. Will you just spoon feed me with this? And see, so the outside world looks at that and goes, oh, simple-minded people. And if I'm going to become a Christian, that means I've got to accept that kind of mindset. But see, the Bible doesn't, the Bible doesn't recommend that kind of uh, thinking at all. You know, what happens is that people, and this is a kind of a modern phenomenon, we like everything, we, we want to be certain about everything, we want answers for everything, we want everything to be absolutely clear. 
And when you have that kind of theology, what happens is that you have a, a, what I call a house of cards theology. Everything depends on everything else, and you've got this nice little box, and everything, you know, you know exactly what you believe, everything from the deity of Jesus Christ to the interpretation of Genesis to, to uh, you know, the interpretation of the book of Revelation. Everything's right in order. Now, when, when a person has that mindset, see, one thing it does is it makes them pretty intolerant of other people. Because someone who's intelligent or godly comes along and says, you know, I disagree with that part of your theology. Well, now that calls into question everything. You remove this card and the whole thing falls down. And so these people, what often happens is people who have this kind of mindset where everything's just got to be absolutely certain to them, they'll, they have to, in their minds, convince themselves that you're either not intelligent or you're not godly, and maybe you're both. So they'll spend a good amount of time doing that. People who have this kind of mindset often get more life from their theology about God than they get from God. That's one of the reasons why they can spend a lot of time making sure that everybody who's in, in our circle, in our club, believes exactly the same thing. It's all important. It's a house of cards theology. And it makes you very, very vulnerable in the modern world, which happens, by the way, to be quite ambiguous on a lot of accounts. A person who has this kind of theology, if anything gets rocked, their whole theology might get rocked. I've known people who have lost their faith because they came to the conclusion that the earth wasn't created in six literal days 10,000 years ago. You know, and I don't, I don't know how old the earth is and, and how literal the days in Genesis are, and frankly, I really don't care. I don't lose sleep on that one. The only thing I worry about is if you think that that's absolutely central to the point where if you change your opinion on that, you're not, you're not wondering whether the virgin birth is true and whether Jesus Christ is Lord or not. See, it makes you very vulnerable. House of cards theology. Move, remove one part and the whole thing falls to the ground. I've known people who have gotten their theology rocked because they, they came to the conclusion that their pre-mid or pre-trib, whatever the terms they use, pre-tribulation rapture theology wasn't the one that the church has usually held through throughout history. It's like, well, how do I know I haven't been fed a whole, a whole you know, scheme of lies? It all might be false. I lost my faith because of some Bible discrepancies. House of Cards theology. If there's uh, one, one little thing in the Bible, a discrepancy that I can't explain away, well, maybe the Bible's a book of lies. Maybe it's not really God's Word. You know, you throw the whole thing out. And see, what grieves me is that there's nothing in the Bible that suggests that this is how faith is to be done. Faith isn't about an absence of questions. Faith is very compatible with a lot of questions. The Bible is not an answer book manual that just writes out a little prescription answer for every question we might have. You read the Bible, and it's a narrative about people who are learning how to walk with God. And you know what you find? They've got a lot of questions. Questions all over the place. You know, Moses has got a ton of questions. Lord, what are you doing? Lord, what are you up to? Lord, who are you? What's going on here? I'm getting a little confused here. You know, you, you got Job. His whole life was a question. The poor guy, he, he is just you know, racking his brain about things, and God never does answer his question. God shows up at the end of the book and basically tells him why he's always going to have the question. Thanks a lot. Not quite what I was looking for. Could you give me the manual on this one, you know? A lot of questions that people have. Abraham, the father of the faithful, his whole life was spent as a question. God gives him a promise, you know, and he spends a lot of time asking God about when it's going to happen, how it's going to happen, what it's going to look like. In fact, if you read Hebrews chapter 11 about all the heroes of faith, most of them were people who died with questions on their brain. It's got to be okay for the people of God to have a lot of questions. Christianity is not about getting together a club of know-it-alls who, uh, who have got answers for every particular thing that people might have. There's a lot of questions and a lot of room for differences of opinion on those questions. I've got a lot of questions. 
Now, the older I get, the more I read, the more I study, the more questions I have. Now, don't worry. I also find that the, the, more, the more solid I get on the central things. But the more questions I have about the peripheral things, and the, the, the less I care about it. You know? A lot of questions! I don't know about you, but people have a lot of questions about, about uh, you know, what is original sin, and what does it mean for us to be fallen in Adam? What does it mean for us to be saved in Christ? And, and, and what is predestined and what's not predestined? There's a good one. Uh, what's foreknown and what's not foreknown? Is everything foreknown, you know? Uh, people have a lot of different opinions about that. I got the right opinion, but a few people don't agree with me, you know? What are you going to do? I don't care. I mean, there's room for ambiguity on this. There's room for disagreement on this. You know, how do you interpret this passage? How do you interpret that passage? Is this literal? Is that literal? What about the whale? And what about what, what about uh, the Book of Revelation? And are you pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, pre-mill, mid-mill, post-mill, windmill, out-mill, whatever? You know, all these questions. Uh, and the more I look at that, the more, you know, frankly, it becomes a little bit ambiguous. A lot of theological questions, a lot of ethical questions, legitimate ethical questions. All this genetic research that's going on now. You know, you've got a lot of good stuff that's coming as a result of that. And maybe some of you will benefit from some of the research that's done there. But there's also a lot of scary stuff that's being done. You know, well, what should the Christian stance on that be? You know, what about the genetic, the, 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 the recent evidence that a lot of our behaviors genetically influenced, if not genetically determined, sociologically influenced? Uh, what do you do with, with the, the awareness that some people's orientation and very sin propensities are, are genetically influenced? How do you integrate that with a theology of compassion? A lot of questions you have. A lot of practical questions. You know, when exactly should you stay fighting the marriage? Uh, when should you get out of the marriage? What if there's abuse going on? When you can get remarried? A lot of marriage questions. A lot of kid questions. A lot of relationship questions. A lot of questions. And you know what? It's always been that way, and I suspect until the Lord comes back, it always will be that way. And so we've got to get okay with it being that way. You don't need to have answers to every single question in the world. The church is not meant to be a place where you spoon-feed people pat answers and cliches to every possible question they have. The Bible's not an answer book manual. It'd be nice. Lord, give us the manual on gene research. Give us the manual on eschatology. Give us the manual on, on, on uh, uh, you know, original sin or what have you. But the Bible's not an answer book manual. If God wanted to give us that, he could have given us that. And the fact that he didn't give us that maybe means that he didn't want to give us that. Which means that maybe there's a purpose to the questions themselves. When you have questions, it makes you humble. When you realize what you don't know, it takes away your cockiness about what you do know. You see, and that's a very important thing to have. When you, when you have a lot of questions, even if you can have an opinion about stuff, but, but, but when you have questions, you begin to respect people's space to differ from you. You see, I, I, I can be very convinced about one particular view, uh, but, but I, I'm not going to blast you for disagreeing with me on this because I understand that, that you can read the evidence in different ways. It, it makes you humble, and it makes you more tolerant and even loving of other people who maybe disagree with you. And see, the body of Christ is not meant to be all homogeneous. Homogeny is not God's goal. Unity amidst, amidst differences is God's goal. And one of the ways people differ is that they think different, and they have different kinds of questions and different kinds of answers to those questions. God could have given us a manual if he wanted to, but, but he didn't. And so the result is there's a lot of questions, and some of them can be tough. But you know what? Amidst all the questions, amidst all the questions, sometimes the confusions, the things we might wrestle with, you know, I haven't got it all figured out just yet. I think it's fun to try to figure it out. I think it's fun to wrestle with it. I think it's fun to debate it. It's also necessary to put it in perspective, given the mission of the church, because there isn't a sinner out there who's not saved who really cares how we answer those questions. What they need is Jesus Christ. Let's keep it in perspective. 
But with a perspective, there's a lot of questions and confusion. But it is enough, is it not? It's enough to know a few things for certain. It's enough for me to know that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what he told his disciples. I'll give you proof about that one. I'm not going to give you the church growth manual. I'm not going to tell you how to iron out all the Jewish-Christian relationships. You know, I'm not going to give you all the info you might like about that. You're going to have to do some thinking on your own. I'll give you this much. I'll give you reasons to believe that I am, that I am Lord. It's enough to know amidst the confusion of life and the ambiguities of life that Jesus Christ is Lord, the Son of God and Savior of the world. Amen? It's enough for me to know that He died for me and that my sins can be forgiven by trusting in Him. It's enough for me to know that He's in the process of transforming me, praise God, changing me from the inside out. I'm confused about a lot of things in life, but I know that for sure. He's changing me from the inside out. There's a lot of questions we might have about a lot of subjects, but you've got to know this. The Lord is calling. It's enough to know this. The Lord has called us to be radical, sold out, surrendered, fully abandoned, passionate disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, fighting the kingdom of darkness, fighting the kingdom of God. Amen? It's enough to know that, what He's called you to do, to live according to His Word as much as you understand it. And right now, this one's really big for me. It's enough for me to know that He's coming back again. And He's going to set up His kingdom. And He's going to reign throughout eternity. Praise God. Praise God. And we shall reign with Him forever and ever. He's heading us on a goal. It may be that you're here this morning and you've got a lot of questions. And that's okay. Maybe they're intellectual questions. Maybe they're personal struggles. Maybe there are things that you really would like to have an answer to right now. And I just want to tell you, you know what? I don't know whether anyone's got the answer to that or not, but I know this. If, if you go to the rock and stand on the rock, the one thing that is solid, it will put it in perspective, and you can have a peace amidst all of your confusing questions, your practical questions, maybe even really serious life questions. There can be a peace, a guidance of the Holy Spirit. Maybe no human being can answer that question, but the Bible says that if you call upon God, uh, if you lack wisdom, call upon God, and He'll give you wisdom. I maybe can't answer your question, but God can guide you on that if you'll make Jesus Christ sinner. Stand on that rock. I miss all the questions that you have. Maybe you're here and you're not a believer, and the reason you're not a believer is because you've just had too many questions, and you thought you had, all, you had to have all the questions answered in order to become a Christian. You know what? This is not true. Do you know the one thing that you need to know, and that's the Lordship of Jesus Christ and what He's done for you? I encourage you to surrender your heart to Him. For us as a church, as the worship team comes forward here, as a church, you've got to know this. Um, you know, Jan, God gave Janice, our executive pastor, a picture that was just profound the other day in a board meeting. And, and, and the picture was this. First, there was a rope that was tied very, that was pulled on both ends, a three-strand a three rope that was a tie, a pulled very tense, like a, like a, like a tug-of-war. It's just really tight. And then the next picture, that rope was wrapped around this rock. And what we discerned the Lord was telling us was basically this. Uh, there are many things that could get us pulling on each other. You know, Woodland Hills Church is a church that is, I think, far more socially and politically and economically diverse, and it's becoming more racially diverse, praise God, than, than average evangelical churches. Uh, we've got a lot of diversity here, and we thank God for that. That's a positive thing. I think it's a wonderful thing. Uh, but there's a lot of things. The unity of the church is not homogeny. It's in, within difference, and those differences could pull on us. But the same force that pulls us apart can be used to unite us when we wrap it around Jesus Christ. 
Have questions, have discussions, have debates, but use it as we hug Jesus Christ. Wrap around Jesus Christ. And the same force that pulls at us from different ends now becomes the force that, that causes us to hang on to the Lord Jesus Christ. We need so badly, so desperately to have Jesus Christ the center of all we do. We come together to raise up Him, amen, to celebrate Him, to lift Him up. He's the center, the beginning, the middle, the end of all that we're about. Many things could divide us, but Jesus Christ unites us, praise God. Whether it's a personal issue you're settling with or a relational thing or whatever, I encourage us this morning to stand on that rock, to know the rock, to base everything upon that rock. We go to the rock. Hallelujah. With the ushers come forward, we're going to go into a time of worship now. And I want to encourage you, I really want to encourage you, in the back, in the middle, up front, to invest everything that you are into worshiping the Lord. Really sell out. Be abandoned. Forget what anyone's going to think about you and focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. There's such a joy and a freedom that comes when you just make yourself open and exalt Jesus Christ. Now you give God a chance to work in your life. We'll begin our worship time with uh, taking up an offering. Uh, that's, that's an act of worship. Praise God. It's an opportunity. It is a privilege. It's how God uses us to spread the kingdom of God against the kingdom of darkness. It's the faithfulness of God's people sacrificially giving to His cause. During the first song, please stay seated until Greg tells us to stand up. Now, it's going to be hard because it's a really, really good song. But we also find we lose buckets when we stand up. So please stay seated. It's going to take discipline. But do it. It'll just be for five minutes, and then we can stand up. Praise God. Father, as we go to you, I pray that your spirit would now just be poured out in a powerful way. Be lifted up and glorified in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.